South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. And a very good morning across South Texas, San Antonio, the Hill Country, Coastal Bend, wherever you happen to be listening directly to our uh, signal from KTSA Radio, or wherever you happen to be listening over the Internet. It's a beautiful Mother's Day Sunday morning out there. Hope all you ladies in the world are going to have a really special day, whether you're whether you're mother to two-legged kids or four-legged kids or, you know, just uh, whoever you happen to be. If you're a mom, you deserve a very, very special day, and that's what this day is set aside for, and uh, hope your day is really special. Uh, we looks like we have Ross waiting to talk. Still have some open lines. If you'd like to get through early, you know the number, 210-599-5555. Oh my gosh, there's so much to do out there with the soil so moist. Great time to put down beneficial nematodes. If you haven't fertilized in the past 90 days, great time to put some fertilizer out. And if you're trying to make the place look prettier, oh man, there's so much color out there from angelonia to vinca to pentas to begonias. There's just no reason to have a drab yard when we've got such uh, beautiful weather and gosh, when you can find so many Beautiful things to put out there in those gardens. So, anyway, whatever you'd like to talk about, give me a call, and we'll get started right now by saying good morning, Ross. Hey, Bob. How you doing? Off to a good start. Beautiful day out yeah. there. Yeah. Um, after all the rain stuff yesterday, my Sam Houston peach started oozing out um, sap from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, I've never seen yeah. it before. Well, it's a little bacterial issue they get sometimes when, uh, mainly when they're stressed. And, you know, every peach around has been stressed with drought for, you know, two, three years. And then all of a sudden we're back to good rains. It's probably not anything to worry about. It doesn't sound like borers. If you, if you go looking and you find what we call frass, looks kind of like sawdust being pushed out along with the sap, then you may have some borers under the bark and you can spray the tree down with the, Fairly concentrated mixture of uh, orange oil, maybe like eight tablespoons to a gallon or something. It'll be absorbed right through the bark and kill the borers. But when it shows up all at once and when it's just kind of a, you know, on overall tree sort of thing, it's just, it's really a sign of stress in the tree. Uh, you want to, you know, follow the sick tree treatment. You want to be sure that root flare is exposed and uh, wouldn't hurt to add, you know, green sand, azomite, some good fertilizer. But I doubt if, as long as the leaves look good, as long as the growth looks good on the tree, I wouldn't lose any sleep over it. Okay, because several days ago it started oozing out sap that was real amber color, then Uh yesterday it's it's really clear. That's just because all of a sudden that tree's taken up more water than it's been able to take up in in quite some time. I I presume you probably got some good rains like most of the rest of the area did uh, uh, overnight, not like this past night, but last night, uh, the night before, yeah. um, everything just all of a sudden, the the plants have moisture like they haven't had in a long time, and it was good moisture because we had so much lightning around with it, and that adds a form of nitrogen to the rainwater that the plants can make use of, and I think that's why you're seeing a change in the color of the sap, and uh, um, like I say, it's, I don't believe it's probably a real serious condition, but anything you can do to lessen the stress on the tree going forward, uh, the less of that you're going to see. Yeah, I mean, it's it put out a decent crop. Uh, mm-hmm. The cardinals have enjoyed it more than I have. 
unfortunately, that always seems to be the way. Next in line will be the possums and the raccoons, and maybe there'll be one or two left over for Ross and his family, but uh, uh, it's just we live in a world of varmints that like to eat peaches and plums and all the wonderful things that we can grow, and peaches, peaches are just top of the list. They somehow seem to sense when that fruit gets toward its peak of ripeness, and just before you get to it, they call all their mm-hmm. friends and show up and have a little party, and you get up the next morning and all you see are peach pits on the ground underneath the tree. I'm afraid I can tell you that from personal experience more than once, but uh, hopefully you'll stay ahead of them this year. <laughs> yeah, there's only about maybe four or five left on that thing. Yeah. Well, their electric fencing is so much easier than it used to be. It used to be a pain putting out the you know, the stakes and then having to deal with that stiff wire and everything. Nowadays, uh, electric fencing is often done with basically a poly piece of polypropylene cord with just mm-hmm. little very, very thin wires embedded through it. And, uh, you know, it's just like hanging a piece of rope around your garden and, you know, plugging it into your um, little fence charger, and it's so easy. And uh, use those fiberglass stakes. I usually put... Uh, two rings of the electric around, one of them about oh, three or four inches off the ground, high enough that it's not going to get shorted out by grass, and then a second one about uh, 12 to 18 inches above the ground. And it does my heart good. I probably shouldn't say this because it sounds a little sadistic, but to be lying in bed in the middle of the night and hear that blood-curdling scream, which means yeah. that one of the raccoons just found the electric fence. It doesn't hurt them, but let's just say it sure does get their attention in a hurry. <laughs> and whether it's corn you're protecting or peaches you're protecting, uh, um, I, I'm just more than happy to send them along their way uh, empty-handed. Yeah. All right, so I'll just show a little patience with this thing. So hope it comes out. Show a little patience. If you want to do one more thing, spray it down with hydrogen peroxide. Um, just, okay. you know, t- take uh, store-bought peroxide and dilute it about two parts water to one part peroxide. That will take care of some of the bacteria, some of the other things that really contribute to the problem. And, of course, it's totally safe for people and pets and birds and everything else. Okay. I'll give it a try. Very good. Well, you get out and have right. a wish your wife happy Mother's Day, and uh, you enjoy the day as well. Yeah, right, you too. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you so much. Okay, bye. All right, next in line are Billy and Diane. Billy is up next. Good morning, Billy. Good morning, Dr. Webster. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Uh, it's just an absolutely beautiful morning. 62 degrees when I got up this morning. And uh, let me tell you, that's uh, when I think about last year, when this time of year we were waking up to maybe 82 degrees, uh, I'll take this year any time. And prospect looking forward looks like uh, we may have a continuation of pretty nice weather for at least the next couple of weeks, and uh, I don't know. It just uh, makes you feel good to get up and go to work. Well, I hope and pray your meteorologist is right about us being in El Nino now. Well, he says we're not there yet, but we're moving strongly in that direction, and we could be well embedded in it by the middle of the summer, and uh, that's just music to, um, well, to to the groundwater district that he serves us uh, with information for, and just all of us in general, it's uh, it's nice to have my cows eating green grass instead of uh, hundred and fifty dollar a bale hay. That's for sure. Amen to that, uh, Bob. I don't know if I dreamed this, but I think I heard you say one time you could use molasses to fight fire ants, especially in the garden. It is a good repellent. 
Uh, old Malcolm Beck discovered this, uh, you know, quite some time ago, and it doesn't kill them, but it creates an uncomfortable situation for them, and they tend to move out. Um, I, it, it's not a hundred percent, but I would say that I've had probably ninety-five percent luck with it. And it's uh, the nice thing about it is great for the plants, great for the soil. Really increases soil microbial activity. And it just makes it an uncomfortable place for fire ants to live. And it's, uh, you know, maybe it moves them out into your pastures. But as long as they're outside my immediate uh, yard area around the house and outside the vegetable garden, I don't, I don't care whether they're out there or not. They do their job of uh, eliminating ticks. And I'd a whole lot rather deal with fire ants than it with ticks. But, yeah, molasses tends to move them somewhere else. Now, I would never do acreage with it because you've got to give the fire ants a place to go. If they And old Malcolm Beck talked about this when he had a long row of grapes that needed to be grafted, and the grafter said, I can't work there, there are too many fire ants. And he went and just tested the area heavily with dry molasses, and the fire ants just moved, you know, 10 feet away. But uh, that was far enough to, you know, let the grape grafting get done. And, and Malcolm used to always say, just always remember to leave them a place to go, leave them a place to go. So... If your garden's really big, you might do, say, the south half of it now, and once all those guys move out, do the north half, and eventually push them over to your neighbor's property and let them deal with it. <laughs> and you if, you, okay. you know, if, if you want to put out a bait for them, that come-and-get-it bait still works pretty well, but unfortunately it's going to kill the harvester ants as well. And uh, uh, like I say, I, don't, I, I eliminate fire ants from my yard and my garden, but on the rest of my acreage, uh, they're kind of welcome because we don't have a fraction of the ticks that we used to have. And with tick disease becoming so prevalent, uh, I'll, I'll put up with a few fire ants as long as they keep doing that. Oh, I totally agree with that. I got one other question. We thatch, is it like mesquite as far as a root? I mean, do you need to root plow it to get rid of it or... Yeah, it will very definitely come back from the root if you don't uh, do something to the stump. Uh, and, and root plowing, you know, Weesatch doesn't have quite as thick and dense a root system, but it will sure sprout back out. And uh, as you can see looking around uh, this past winter and back in 2021, virtually every mesquite in this area froze to the ground and everybody thought they were dead, and then they sprouted right back out. So... Um, if it's not a place, if your soil's as rocky as mine, uh, and I know it's not organic, but it's it doesn't leave any real harmful residue behind. When I cut off, well, I don't have much we to deal with, but uh, when I cut off mesquite at ground level, I'll just dump some uh, diesel over that spot. The microbes in the soil, especially if you come back, I like to come back and follow it up a couple of weeks later with a little bit of molasses, either liquid or dry. And uh, that stimulates the microbes that clean it up and basically turn a fuel like that into a form of fertilizer that plants can absorb and use. So, um, again, it's not organic, but it sure is better than getting something like Remedy and trying to go after one with that. And that stuff's horrible with the residue it leaves behind. And if you read the instructions on it, they tell you to mix it with diesel before you put it on. And I personally think the diesel alone does does plenty for me. And now the diesel's come back down to a reasonable price. And it doesn't take a lot. Depending on the size of the tree, it may be a cup or two. It may be a quarter or two on a really big one. But uh, that that has sure worked well for me on mesquite. And I know it'll do the same on uh, Wiesatch. Okay. Well, this is down south. Uh, and we've got 
we've got a plow and everything, and it's popping up in our food plots. Yeah, and everything. Yep. So. Uh, yeah, root root well, the deep root plow. Yeah, it does work. But uh, yeah, if you've got a, a root plow and a big enough tractor to pull it effectively. And then uh, I've just, you know, I've always used a rock rake or something like that just to go, you know, drag the last of it into a pile that I can burn it when it dries out. It's uh, it's a little effort, but what part of ranching isn't a little bit of effort anymore? <laughs> and most of the ranchers I know live to a ripe old age because of the amount of exercise we tend to get just in our daily lives. So uh, it's not a bad thing. I just wish there were more hours in the day so that uh, could accomplish more before that sun goes down every evening. True, true. Okay. Well, I guess that's all I got, Bob. I do appreciate it, and well, thank you for all you do. It's always my pleasure. You get out and enjoy this beautiful day, Billy. I know we'll talk again sometime yep. soon. Thank you. Diane, you hang on just a second. The log says I better get a little uh, commercial in here for my friends over at Fanix, and I do love talking about my friends at Fanix. People ask me, say, why do you advertise for your competitors? And I say, well, they're not really competitors. They just happen to be longtime friends in the same business. And Fanix is one of those nurseries that, you know, just has a lot of respect. Old lady Fanix started about 90 years ago, always been in the same family, always been dedicated to quality. And Fanix is known for lots of different things. They are known for their roses, and they still have a lot of those in stock. This time of year, they are known for their crepe myrtles. And uh, believe me, they are well stocked on crepe myrtles and getting better stocked every day as we move towards summer. They'll probably wind up with close to 100 varieties of crepe myrtles before it's all said and done. And of course, this weekend, they're well stocked on all sorts of beautiful plants to give mom for Mother's Day. And they have certified sweet potato slips in now. I know there's just a lot of reasons to go see them if you're looking for uh you know, a really nice gift if mom's one of those people that loves to do some of the grilling herself. Check out Traeger Grills and the supplies they have over at Fanix. If mom uh, enjoys using power equipment but she's reluctant to use that leaf blower, that chainsaw, because she hates to start it, well, go take a look at their lithium-ion battery-powered outdoor equipment that, uh, you know, you just squeeze the trigger. There's none of this uh, messing with gasoline and no... No effort in trying to get it started. It just works first time every time. And I know a lot of ladies in my life that really enjoy their battery-powered equipment. I could go on and on about Fanix. You just need to go see them. They're well-stocked on just about everything you can imagine, including all the organic gardening supplies that we talk about all the time. And like I say, it would be a very special day to take Mom over there and let her pick out her own Mother's Day gift. Fanix is right over there on Home Green Road, where they've been for almost 90 years. Check out upcoming activities like the Big Tomato Contest in June. All of it's up on their website at Fanic, F-A-N-I-C-K, FanicNursery.com. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening on a beautiful Sunday morning this Mother's Day. Let's say good morning, Diane. Hi, Bob. This is the other Diane. (laughs) Well, all right, that's... Very good. Uh, how can I help Mark today? I got a question and several observations. So the, the sun gold tomatoes seem to be real susceptible to the early blight. And typically they kind of out seem, well, you know, when it's damper in the early spring or, the, or rain or humid, humid. So have you seen that and what do you do about it? Well, the gold? place early blight comes from is 
it usually gets splashed up onto the lower foliage, you know, by rain or by improper watering or things like that. And uh, we have been blessed with a little bit more rain than we have the past two or three years. So uh, it's not unusual that you're seeing it on a lot of varieties. I find you can head off a lot of that if you uh, dust the ground pretty liberally with whole ground cornmeal uh, around the time you plant your plants and then, you know, refresh it periodically. And, uh, of course, you know, spraying with, uh, well, at first, if you just see a, a leaf or two with it showing up, I just pinch those off and into the compost pile with those leaves. But right. if it right. gets a gets a head start on you, uh, uh, you can prevent with garlic. You can uh, control, I'm not going to say totally cure, but you control by spraying with corn water tea. Okay, so if, if you hit it with the garlic before, well, before it's a problem that, that should help prevent it, you're saying? Well, it, it, the way it was explained to me by Dr. Lane Ingham, who is one of the, where is the foremost authority uh, microbiologist, used to be with the University of Oregon, and uh, oh, the sort of the, the princess of compost tea, I won't use the word Bruce Dooley used to use to describe her, but uh, uh, nice, nice lady and extraordinarily capable, and uh, extraordinarily capable person, and she, in a lecture I was attending when she was speaking, said that there are only so many sites on a leaf where fungi can get started, where a fungus spore can make its entry, so to speak, and cause a problem. And if all those sites are occupied by beneficial fungi, there's no way the bad guys ever get started. And garlic okay. is a yeah. great, great stimulant of beneficial fungi and basically just kind of puts a coat of armor on the leaves of whatever plants you spray it on if you do it with some regularity. So that was her explanation why the garlic seems to work so well. Okay. Yeah, what, I, what I've been doing is I've carefully cut off all the yellow leaves, and, and in some cases I've had to strip a lot of the foliage, but it typically seems to outgrow it once it gets really hot and dry. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, of course, anyway. you know, a fungus spore, if it lands on a dry leaf, nothing happens. Fungus spore lands on a moist leaf, and that spore can germinate. And if there's a site available to it, it will penetrate the leaf, and that's where the problems start. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, so uh, the the orange hard worm that somebody called about yesterday. Right. Uh, that's a uh, it's a wire worm. Oh, okay. It's, it's the larva of the click beetle. Right, and it's more of a problem on potatoes. Is where I've always seen it do more damage, but. Uh, uh, I guess it could be a yeah. problem on almost any uh, underground thing like that. Um, beneficial nematodes are the way to head them off, and uh, uh, it, it beneficial nematodes work really very well to control them, uh, especially if you get them on early before they, you know, really gotten gotten up to a big size. Right, and the only problem we've had is the click beetles like to nibble on peaches, mm -hmm. and that was a big problem. But I. I found a way to solve that. They they like to go to light at night, so I put a big uh -huh. tub of water with soap in it and a light over it, and oh, I yeah. got rid of all of them over a few days. The old gym bug trap that Malcolm Beck taught us about years ago. It works for pretty much all of those night flying beetles and uh, pretty darn safe and effective. Yep, right, right. Um, on, on the on the hail protection, I've probably spent 40 or 50 hours this year covering and uncovering all the vegetables <laughs> for hail and and well, severe thunderstorms. There's there's been so many forecasts of severe thunderstorms this year. <laughs> yeah, and but, then the one time they don't forecast them, they happen. I I don't yeah. know how that occurs, but it seems to be a very regular regular thing. 
So we use the the big welded wire tomato cages and hardware cloth and leave that on. Mm-hmm. When the tomatoes are small, we still had our hoops up because we covered them a couple of nights for cold. But right. on the hoops, you can use 30% shade cloth. It's it's expensive, but boy, it's way easy to put on there. It's you can just you know just slide it right over. Oh yeah, and I put it I put it on with wire ties, so I'm ready when I'm ready to cut it off. Right. I just get out there with my little uh, snips right. and comes right off. And you know, decent quality shade cloth is going to last 20 years. So when you amortize that cost out, it's not really that expensive at all. Right, right, yeah. So that that works great. Um, so the, for two years now, we've had brown spots on the on the beans, the bush beans when they're small. Okay. And I couldn't figure it out. I think. This year, though, I figured it out. I think it's because they got down like around 40 degrees a couple nights. Uh-huh. That could be. And and because this year they've outgrown it. Last year we we basically had to pull them out. So I, ah. I think that's why that. I think that's what was causing the brown spots. So they're okay now. Well, that's that's good to hear. And uh, of course, bush beans are one of those things that you will probably plant two or three plantings of if you want to harvest all summer. And is rarely a problem later on, so you're probably exactly right. Once those nights warm up, uh, whatever the cause of agent is, is uh, goes away. Right, right. Uh, and one on bell peppers, just to comment, we our staple is the gypsy bell peppers. Mm-hmm. That's a very good one. Gypsy and keystone are two of the best. Yeah, uh huh. And they'll keep producing through the summer. Yeah, I find that the size of the pepper usually decreases, but they do continue to produce. And uh, right, so right. unless you're stuffing them or doing, uh, you know, uh, the, oh, what am I trying to think of? Uh, the uh, oh, the uh, chiles rellenos is what I'm trying oh, to yeah, say. And yeah. of course, that's a different pepper. But uh, unless you're trying to stuff them to cook, uh, the little small pepper is still just as flavorful as a big one. So. I right, I don't right. know any way to get around that than to move further north, and I don't plan to do that. Yeah, so we plant mostly gypsy, and then a few of the big ones for the uh-huh. you know the early spring and fall harvest. Very good, very good. And the last observation we so we planted you know several hundred trees and thousands of other plants. Um, so we we learned a new thing. Well, the the things that can be a problem after a while, <laughs> flame leaf sumac colonize very fast. They <laughs> yes, they indeed, a lot. Yep. Mexican plum, Mexican plum will colonize, and blanco crabapple is coming up. It's been years. It's been coming up 30 feet away from the mother plant. Mm-hmm. And, and and actually, a question there: if if we just needed couldn't deal with all the shoots coming up everywhere, I guess if we took the mother plant out, it would eventually stop. Or do you? you know? <laughs> Wishful thinking. You take the mother plant out and then root plow the area. Uh, you won't have much problem, but any of these things where there's crepe myrtles, Mexican plum, Nandina, the old-fashioned ones, or anything else, unless you eliminate that underground rhizome, it's going to do its best to come back on you. So uh, it's either spend some time with a grub and hoe or get in there with a chisel plow or root plow, something like that, that you can get them out with because they they do tend to colonize, and that's what makes them so successful. But on the other hand, they don't get oak wilt, and they right, don't right. stay pretty looking, but they tend to make it through the drought, so very satisfactory right. plants in some areas. And one last thing we just learned, we planted soapberry because they're supposed uh-huh. to be very, very drought-proof and great for wildlife. Yeah. After 15 years, the big, the one that's 12 feet high has started putting out shoots everywhere in the garden. And, I mean, just, just <laughs> over in, in a one-year period, all of a sudden it goes boom. Well, and you know, the reason for that is stress, and the reason for the stress is drought. 
Uh, you yeah, give it a yeah. good situation where it doesn't feel like uh, it, it, it's not. It's it's all chemical. It's not you know certainly they they don't don't feel the same things we do. But when they chemically get an indication that uh, things are not going well, that they may not last a lot longer. The normal instinct is to, you know, try to make more trees that will be there. And so when we get a stressful situation like three years of drought, yeah, everything starts putting on a whole lot more root sprouts than you see at other times. But hopefully if we move back into El Nino, then uh, that'll be much less of a problem. So good observations, Mark. It's always good to hear from you. And uh, tell yeah, Diane, happy Mother's Day. Tell will. her happy Mother's Day for me. Thank you so much. All right, I uh, have to get a break in here. Clint, Ella, and James are my next three callers, but I get to talk for a moment about Sam Sitterly and Green Grow Organics. And once again, it's nice to be able to recommend somebody to you who can provide the service of a consultant, somebody that comes on site, somebody that has about 30 years of experience doing this, somebody that knows just about every problem that can show up in the South Texas landscape, plus has some pretty good design abilities himself. Well, Sam and his folks are out there to help you when you need help. Uh, he, they do, you know, some things like compost tea application and maybe a bit of fertilizing things, but not the folks who are going to mow your tree, mow your yard, or trim your trees. But if you have things going on in your landscape that you just really can't describe adequately over the telephone when you call me, well, Sam's the guy that'll come out to your property and take a look at those problems with you and come up with a solution. Like I say, he's been in business. His company. Uh, uh, has been there for just getting real close to 30 years now. It's uh, called Green Grow Organics. And if you go to that website, you'll see all sorts of pretty pictures. You can find out all about the programs he offers. If it looks good to you, give him a call. Set up a consultation. Be sure you understand any charges up front. But lots of our customers, lots of people we know, set it up for Sam to come out on a quarterly basis or maybe with the new landscape. It might be a more like a monthly basis. Other folks just call him when they need some consultation. He is Sam Sitterly. His business is Green Grow, spelled out G-R-O-W, Green Grow Organics. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Uh, Greg tells me Ella dropped off, probably had to head off to church. So it looks like it's going to be Clint and James and AJ. Clint is first in line. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How's it going? It's going well. It's a beautiful morning out there. Oh, oh, definitely, definitely. Sun's even peeking out. Can't, can't wait. <laughs> yes, sir. What's going on in your world? After all this rain, I finally got getting ready to do my next batch of uh, uh, compost tea and wondering is my well water has a really high iron content does that affect the microbes it shouldn't have any impact at all uh, sulfur is probably going to affect affect things a little bit sometimes when you have a high iron you have some sulfur to go along with it but uh, as long as you're not real high in sulfur I wouldn't worry about the iron at all in fact if anything it's uh you know, it'll do some good things in the soil and should have really no impact at all on, on uh, either bacteria or fungi. Okay. Now, the sulfur, does that fall out of the water or evaporate out, or is it just there? It's pretty much there, but you will know it's there by the odor, that kind of rotten egg odor. But um, uh, other than some, you know, pretty fancy 
uh, equipment on your water. It's something you just you're just going to have to deal with. It would. Uh, I'm not sure if there's anything that you can really add to take the sulfur out. It'd be one more reason to you know have at least a part of your roof where you can collect rainwater, and that's the best thing on the earth to make uh, your your compost tea out of. But Again, if if in doubt, uh, get a, get a water quality test, and probably be good to know exactly what's in the water to begin with. And other other than sulfur, you're not likely to have well sulfur and sodium is the other thing that can be an issue. But uh, as far as effect on microbes, uh, sulfur's about the only thing I can think of that would really have much impact. Okay, I had the water test, and I don't remember the, the sulfur. I know I know the iron is really high, but yeah. Oh, well, so it's probably not existent. Yeah, if your if your water smells good, you don't you don't have a sulfur issue. Now, uh, after this, I got my azomite down around my trees and stuff right uh-huh. before the rains. So, how long do I need to wait before I put on the next uh, dusting of it? Um, it's not toxic in any way. It's uh, you know, you you can put it on whenever you think it's necessary. I kind of go by the severity of the problem. If I've got, for instance, a real severe chlorosis issue or something like that, let's say on peaches or plums, I'm probably going to put it on about every 30 days. If I'm doing it more just as a preventive uh, on vegetable gardens and things like that, probably every 90 days is enough. But I think you just have to have to look at whether you're using it to uh, cure or to prevent and in a curative fashion, you'll want to use it uh, considerably more often. But uh, uh, I don't really imagine ever you need to use it more than every 30 days or so. How long does it take to break down, dissolve, and get down to the root zone? Well, it doesn't really uh, break down, so to speak. It's processed by the microbial life in the soil that then make it available to the plants. And that is dependent on moisture and weather. But uh, in warm soil, it's probably a matter of, uh, you know, days before it's available through the plants. How fast uh, the effects will show up in the plants will depend on the metabolic rate in the plant, so to speak. So real hard to predict. And uh, if you're using it, if you're fighting chlorosis, whether it's iron chlorosis or zinc chlorosis or whatever else, unfortunately, it doesn't really quickly do anything to change the leaves that are affected where you really see the difference is when the new foliage comes out and it looks so much better and of course that's going to be a seasonal thing and real hard to predict exactly when it's going to happen without knowing uh, exactly when you put it on and what crop you have whether it's you know something in the garden that's growing constantly or whether it's a woodier plant that puts on most of its growth and one big spurt and then kind of sits there for the next uh, nine months or so. So I, it, it's real hard to tell you exactly what to expect, but it'll just depend on the plant and uh, to some extent how bad the problem is. Okay, good deal. Well, getting back to your story on the raccoon and the electric fence, don't right. feel bad about that because the only alternative is the 12 gauge, and I'm sure and, you take a fence time. Yeah. <laughs> and and may may do some damage to the fruit bearing uh, uh, item that you were trying to protect. Uh, I guess one other thing that I should mention about my own experience: uh, if I'm doing it during hot, dry weather, I will go out in the evening and wet the soil down underneath the uh, strands of electric cord, 
and uh, that just makes those little such and suches uh, much better grounded, and they get a much better charge when they come in contact with the fence. So that, that's one way you can make it more effective. Now, after a good rains like most of us have had, that soil is plenty moist. But in the middle of the summer when things are really dry, I go out last thing in the evening and just make a quick circle around with the hose and uh, seems to really in, increase the uh, effectiveness of the fence, shall we say. Most definitely, and the uh, most stubborn bull will respect that electric wire. Isn't that wonderful? Every time. <laughs> oh, it is. You know, yep. If it ain't there, they'll go through any fence, uh, depending on how hard-headed Well, I, I had he one that figured out figured figured out that he could do that, and he made uh, he made a one-way trip to Fredericksburg, and I got a check for over $1,500 in the mail a few days later, so... Uh, I, I let one of those younger bulls that hadn't decided to start pushing his way through the fence take over. So, yeah, it's uh, uh, you can't make a cow do anything. You have to let them think it's their idea. And, unfortunately, you get a big old 1,500-pound creature, and uh, once they figure out how strong they are, you'll, you'll never keep them in. <laughs> Send them to the packing house. That's <laughs> well, you always tell yourself, oh, no, somebody with better fences needed a good herd bull, but... Uh, on the other hand, uh, I'll think of them every time I have a hamburger for the next few months. <laughs> there you Clint, go. you get out and you have a wonderful Sunday. It's always good to talk to you. You too. Take care. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Let's see here. Um, yeah, let's go ahead and talk to James, and we'll get our last break of the hour in. Good morning, James. Morning, Bob. Good um, morning, sir. Hey, I've got a question about artichokes. When's sure. the best time to order the seed and get it started? You know, I have always started with plants. I think the seed is a little, can be a little tricky to germinate and grow. Somebody like you with all your experience could probably do very well. Um, probably about the time you want to start putting them in the ground is going to be about March or April. So I would guess back that off about 30 to 45 days. So um sometime about when about the time you start your tomato transplants is when i would think about uh starting the artichoke seed and that'll give you a nice little seedling plant to set out it's unlike tomatoes that tend to you know overgrow pretty quickly if they don't get into the ground you you can keep that artichoke plant in a gallon container for several months if you need to but um uh probably better just you know start them in the four inch pot like you do other things but no i'd, I'd be looking at uh Late January, February, if I was going to grow a spring crop of them. Okay, we can uh, run them with the, the tomatoes and peppers uh, when we get that going. Oh, yeah. Okay, <laughs> and, and um, the big big sunflowers, we want to grow a, a row of them, uh, those monster sunflowers. Do you have a favorite, uh, Kong or uh, Black Russian or... If you're just looking for a, uh, a, just for a good big yellow, that black Russian is really hard to beat. Uh, if you're looking for some variety, oh golly, they they do a, uh, I'm trying to remember, it's it's one of the mixes, but uh, you can get a lot of color variation in the petals that are in the in the ray flowers on those things, and uh, but but just for a big old yellow sunflower, it's hard to beat that black Russian. Okay, and uh, we grow our field tomatoes in cages, and uh, I don't know how many, 10 years or so, we've covered those cages with a 
product called SmartNet. Uh-huh. And uh, it's lasted for 10 years, and it still looks like it can go another 10. Um, it keeps the hail off and the mockingbirds, and it's really good <laughs> stuff. You yes. can, a short guy like me can lift it up and then go underneath it and go up and down the rows and check for uh, for ripe tomatoes. So it's so, called uh, SmartNet. I'm not familiar with that. It's SmartNet, yeah. Uh, the, a lot of orchard growers use it. It's, it's really tough stuff, and it's uh, it's a white ma- material. Looks like shade top, but it's white, and it's uh, it's really easy to put on top of those cages. The only thing is you've got to take an old hose, old water hose, and... Uh, uh, flip it to the top of the cage so it doesn't get caught on the wire, but sure, that's, sure. Uh, that's not a big deal. Yeah, and it holds up pretty well. For that's the thing about uh, white shade cloth. It's been my experience. It just the the black lasts for twenty years, the white lasts for ten. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how this uh, SmartNet takes it. But if it's lasted for ten years for you, sounds like a good product. I made a note of that. I'll I'll just have to look into that. It sounds like a Really good thing uh, for somebody that fights all of us, like all of us, trying to protect from hail and keep the critters away at the same time. So I just made a big nar- big note here with a box around it and a big exclamation next to it about SmartNet. You got time for one more, Bob? Go right ahead. Uh, I'm looking for a small Roma plant. Um, I was told that the La Roma 3 is, is short growing. We could grow on stakes. But then I heard they get five foot tall, so I don't know who to believe. I've never found a Roma that really, well, I've never found one that gets super big, and I've never found one that, uh, you know, is just truly dwarf. Uh, San Marzano is one that uh, I've grown, and it tends, for me, it always tops out at three or four feet. But, uh, you know, sometimes when you've got somebody that's as good a grower as you are, Things just get above their predicted size, but uh, uh, take a look at San Marzano sometime. That that's. Yeah, I thought that was an indeterminate, Bob. Mine, mine stay, mine have stayed much more compact. But the other thing I find is uh, in my garden, for whatever reason, the Romas are the most blight susceptible tomatoes out there. So maybe mine just don't last as long into the summer as yours do. Well, we're. We've got three families that want to get together and make uh, marinara sauce and salsa because it's getting so expensive in the store, and it's really not that good. Well, and it's a great family activity to get involved in. So uh, I'll ask around. I I know some other folks that do the same thing, and uh, I'll see if I can come up with any other varieties for you to try. But, you know, Johnny's, whatever they've got, is probably going to be one of the better ones. And, uh um, you can always, if you have to, you know, you can clip them back a little bit, but I just put them in that big cage and enjoy the extra fruit. Yeah, we just wanted to stake them and then run a, a, a wire all the way down the, uh, the row at about four foot, and then we could cover the whole row with the smart net when, it, uh, when the hail comes. That sounds like a plan. Well, I'll keep looking, and you do the same, James, and thanks for the Info on SmartMed. We always learn something from you, so you get out and have a good Sunday, and we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Bob. My pleasure. Thank you.
All right, Greg, let's get our last break of this hour out of the way. We'll be right back with more gardening here on KTSA Radio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster, News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening and straight back to the phone lines. Uh, let's see, looks like AJ is next in line. Good morning, AJ. Hello, Bobby. How you doing this morning? Well, it's just a really pretty morning with moisture in the soil and cool temperatures. It just doesn't get a lot better. I haven't had any situations you develop yet today. All right, we're not going to create. We're not going to create any. Uh, I've got one situation for you. Okay. Our old blackberry plants. Do deer like them, or what's their preference? Deer will eat a blackberry that doesn't have a lot of thorns, but uh, most of the thornless varieties don't do well down here anyway. So I've never had a problem with deer on the blackberries. I grow Roseboro, and it's not as thorny as the old Brazos is. Uh, Brazos is the one the county agents have been recommended for a long time, and that's so thorny, I don't think deer will get close to it. But uh, and, and I usually grow them in the garden, but where they try to sprout up on the other side, I, I don't think I've ever seen a deer get after any of mine. But like I said, they're all pretty thorny. All right. Okay. Well, that's good. I'm going to give some place to my brother-in-law. And where he's going to plant them is kind of out in the open. He asked that question, and I couldn't really, I had no knowledge. So I figured I'd, I'd check with you and... and, and <laughs> take it from there well i think what he will probably find aj is that you know at that time of year that the blackberries put out that little underground runner and start little new plants around the mother plant that foliage may be tender and he may want to spray a little deer repellent or you know put up something temporary around that but once that blackberry plant gets up and gets tough um, I, unless it's real droughty, unless the deer are just on the verge of starvation, I don't think they'll touch them. Okay, all right. I'm I'm satisfied with that answer. Well, I hope that that resolves that situation, and I hope you don't have any others come up on this pretty day. But you know where to call me if you do. I'll I'll do that, Bobby. Thank you. You're certainly welcome. Thank you. We'll talk soon. All right, tell you what, Greg, we're just uh, less than two minutes away from news here, so don't want to rush, uh, don't want to rush Chicken Joe or Frank. So you guys hang on; we'll be right back after the news break, and uh, I will remind you that this is the perfect time with all the moisture in the soil. If you're fighting fleas, if you're fighting fire ants, if you're concerned about grubs and things, would be a really good day to put out your beneficial nematodes, and then just go back with just enough water to wash them off the foliage of your grass and down onto the ground. It's also a very good time if you haven't fed in the past 90 days or so. Any of the good organic fertilizers love to be put out on moist soil. There's no danger of dehydrating or burning the plants. Uh, again, they don't really get go to work until they get watered in, but uh, you're not running around with the garden hose trying to water immediately after putting them down. So be a great day to put out fertilizer. If you're fighting, it's, it's awfully early for disease issues in the grass, but if you're concerned about take-all patch, which is our fungus disease that sometimes shows up in the summer, little preemptive action with your whole ground cornmeal would not be a bad idea at all. And, of course, cornmeal gosh, has so many different uses out there, and it heads off so many different fungal problems. also works to create what we call systemic-induced resistance to oak wilt uh, in those oak trees. So if that's an issue you're fighting, again, 
be a real good time to get your cornmeal out. As far as planting, I think you're I think it's warm enough now that you can plant just about all of the plants that we normally hold off on until warm weather gets here. But I think the vincas are probably safe on and sweet potatoes. Uh, now we know that we've got some good certified slips available, so I wouldn't hesitate to plant sweet potatoes. Okra, it's up to you. Okra doesn't really grow well until it gets really hot, and we're certainly not to that point yet. But if you want to get those little plants started, you almost certainly could do that as well. Lots of other things. We'll talk about those after the news here on KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now, 210-599-5555. All right, back to jar gardening on this uh, beautiful Sunday morning out here. Looks like we're going to talk to Chicken Joe and Frank and Donna in that order. So uh, let's start out with the chicken man. Good morning, Joe. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good hey, morning, sir. Listen, I, I used to describe, uh, you know, doing the same thing over and over again is actually not insanity, but garden. Garden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a pretty astute observation. But, uh, you know, uh, even a blind pig finds an acre in every once in a while. So I uh, that's it. You just keep keeping records to me is the most important thing. And there's nothing more frustrating than to look at a plant and say, wow, that's that's great. I wonder what variety that is because you forgot to write it down or finding something that just really works well. And then uh, not remembering exactly how you did it. Uh, I've gotten to be a. A pretty big note taker about uh, everything from smoking fish to growing tomatoes. Yeah, well, I'm not very good about that, so I, I just have to keep trying. But, <laughs> hey, listen, um, I'm one of you know I, I I have this habit of buying all these amendments and stuff that Bob Webster tells you about, and then I then I get confused as to exactly what I should do. Now I have been spraying my seedlings with Garrett juice uh, this this year mm-hmm. uh, but i have to jump back every time i spray them but um <laughs> of course, and, of, and of course i you know i know i use has to grow very very regularly but i was just going out and checking in my in my uh, supply shed and i got a bottle of seaweed blend and a it's not a bottle a gallon and a gallon of uh uh Fish blend, the new Medina fish blend fertilizer. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I just as a matter of pride and not practicality, I need to figure out how to use them properly. So well, the, for a minute. Their, their new fish blend, I just alternate it with uh, the Hasegrove plant. Anywhere the Hasegrove mm-hmm. plant works well, to me it's just giving things a little bit of a varied diet. Uh, I mean, I love prime rib, but I don't want to eat it for every meal. And that's, I, <laughs> yeah. you know... I, I think plants feel the same way, so I just try to use something like Medina plant one time and use the fish blend the next time. Um, you and I, this is more in a greenhouse. Now, in a garden, you have to recognize that anything that has fish in it may be attractive to raccoons and a few other critters. So um, that's always a consideration. But uh, I, in general, I just alternate the fish blend with the uh, Hester Grove plant, and it has been just a winning combination on a lot of different things. As far as the uh, the molasses, uh, I'm sorry, the seaweed, uh, it is seaweed, when you stop and think about the reasoning behind it, 
the streams and rivers of the world drain to the oceans and consequently carry a lot of different minerals and things into seawater. Your your seaweed, especially your cold water kelps, tend to pull those minerals out and concentrate them in their uh, tissues, and that's why it's just it, it's a great liquid way uh, to add. And I guess you could use a dry seaweed product as well. But it just brings in a large, I think they're like 95 different beneficial compounds in seaweed, and you can use it as a foliar spray, you can use it as a drench. It just just adds a lot of different things that tend to stimulate plant growth. And in the case of tomatoes and other plants which sometimes suffer spider mite damage, it has the effect of toughening the leaves on the plants to where the mites can't get at them nearly as well, and uh, it doesn't kill the mites. But by spraying every two, three weeks with uh, liquid seaweed, you'll almost always solve, you know, spider mite problems, two-spotted mite problems, cyclamen mite problems. It just toughens up the leaf to where the mites can't damage them nearly as much. Yeah, okay. Well, fortunately, raccoons are not a problem here, but rabbits are a scourge, and rabbits yeah. seem to like, they don't eat fish, so. Well, they yeah they they're not attracted uh, the way possums and raccoons are, but that's one of the advantages of uh, getting up a little higher elevation, a little bit colder climate, where you lucky guy you go spend your summer. So uh, <laughs> yeah, of course we don't have to deal with moose getting into the garden every now and then. And one of my friends that has a place yeah. over in Breckenridge periodically sends me pictures from his game cameras of. You know, look who was in my backyard, and one time it was a moose eating his plants, and the next time it was a bear that climbed on top of the hot tub cover and collapsed it in and was just happily bathing in his hot tub. So you guys you guys have your own little share of issues, but uh, yeah. I, I think you've got the best of both worlds. Enjoy the winter's warmth down here and the summer's cool up there, so you're doing well. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh Historically, I've used, you know, I sprayed plants with seaweed and molasses, uh-huh. uh, but, you know, I just bought the straight seaweed for some reason this year, and uh, if I want to add molasses, uh, I guess, um, what, 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 is it necessary for the foliar spraying? Well, uh, it, it, what, what it molasses, yeah, molasses does totally different things. It really increases the microbial activity. I love to use it in combination on my tomato plants, especially because uh, spider mites are usually an issue with tomatoes, which the seaweed takes care of, and um, various caterpillars are an issue, which I usually spray in the spring with uh, Bt, and I find that by adding the molasses to my seaweed spray, it keeps the Bt active where I rarely have to make a second application of that, so... My formula is for every gallon of water, I use two tablespoons seaweed, one tablespoon molasses, and that's just that's okay. just my general garden spray. Okay, well at that rate, I guess I'll uh, leave a half of that gallon to my son. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but uh, it 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 sure does work well on just about anything. Yeah. It it does leave some spotting behind on. Uh, White flowers, uh, you you know, it, you're you're going to have some brown stain on there, but uh, fortunately, things like periwinkles, some of our better white flowers, uh, we don't really have that much cause to use the liquid seaweed or the molasses either one. So uh, just just yeah. keep that in mind when you're spraying your marigolds. Of course, it doesn't really show up as much, so um, it all works well. 
Okay, yeah, well, I, let me just give one quick testimonial to our friends at Medina, and then I'll let you go. Okay. I'm starting my third. Uh, we have Bentonite clay up here, which is just, right. It's even worse than anything I ever ran into in San Antonio. <laughs> but I'm into my third. I'm into my third year of, of uh, treating uh, the the garden with uh, soil activator. Uh huh. The, the the transformation is amazing. It's so amazing. I've done, I've helped two friends here with their gardens, and they're now disciples. So. Man, I got to tell you, that stuff works. It really does. It just it doesn't work overnight. And uh, you know, bentonite. One of the things they use for when they when it's finally powdered is they use that to seal uh, leaky stock tanks and things like that, where the water mm-hmm. tends to mm-hmm. go through. And they actually make an application of bentonite as a way to hold water into a stock tank. And so, unfortunately, it does the same thing with holding water in the soil. So, uh, it sounds like you've uh, you found a good solution, as many thousands of people around the world have, and uh, and you know that soil activator, the Medina Plus, is just soil activator, which has some liquid seaweed added to it. So I like the Medina yeah. Plus even better than the old soil activator. Yeah. But yeah. that's what the company started on. They built their reputation, and uh, that that was their first product that they created, and um, it's worked for you know fifty some odd years now. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, listen, I'll let you go. I really appreciate your patiently answering the same question again and again because my memory seems to be not that great. <laughs> well, your your brain is just full of a lot of good things, Joe. So uh, you get out and have a wonderful day. Wish the lady in your life a happy Mother's Day, and uh, I know we'll talk again soon. Okay, thanks much, Bob. Okay, bye-bye. That's my pleasure. Goodbye. All right, let's go ahead and take one more call. That would be Frank. Good morning, Frank. Yeah, hey, Bob, how are you doing this morning? Doing well. Beautiful day out there. Okay. All right, well, I got a couple of things. I fertilized three days before that storm we hit. Uh-huh. And I'm wondering, is that, did it wash all that away, or is it still good, or I it, use it, that Medina. Yeah, it should be fine. Um, you know, if you had a, you know, an actual stream running through, it could physically wash some things away but the beauty of organic fertilizers is through a product uh, process called cation exchange the nutrient actually binds to the soil so that old junk oh. people buy at the uh, hardware store or the box store that is uh, chemically derived yeah that stuff uh, gets diluted gets washed away very quickly but your good organic products like medina um, are actually bound two different things in the soil so that you don't worry nearly as much about all the nutrient leaching out oh good okay then real quick also is uh when when we had that big storm last year whatever 17 degrees and all that a part of my uh, bermuda grass i mean my uh, carpet grass it died and it Mm -hmm. didn't come back this summer and now in the last three weeks or so um bermuda grass took over the whole spot Yep. All of them. And I'm wondering, where did that stuff come from? <laughs> you know, B- Bermuda grass good. Bermuda grass loves the heat and loves the fertilizer, and Mother Nature abhors bare soil. So she's always going to send in something to clean it up. And I've seen Bermuda grass runners grow, you know, a foot or two in a week's time. So just yeah. the weather suddenly got ripe for the Bermuda grass to explode into growth. Now, given time... 
and and fertilizer and water. St. Augustine will choke out Bermuda. St. Augustine's one of the few things that is stronger than Bermuda. So if you want to get back to an all St. Augustine lawn, you probably ought to go into some of the spots where you have good St. Augustine, dig up some little plugs, and go back and plant it in what is now a Bermuda patch. And over time, the St. Augustine will dominate. But right now, I'd just, oh, okay. be thankful, just be thankful you don't have the mud to deal with. Something came in there. And uh, Bermuda's, I, Bermuda's a good grass. It's different from St. Augustine. And, you know, in the right spot, it may be the better grass. In other areas, St. Augustine's the better grass. But when you want all St. Augustine, it will dominate the Bermuda as long as you provide the water and the nutrients it needs. Okay. And real quick, I had a tree cut down, um, let's see, two years ago. And when they did, they ground up the trunk also. Yep. Right. And it left, it left, I called it sawdust and gran- all granule pieces of the tree and everything. Uh-huh. And now, now that's, uh, it's going away. But did that stuff turn into like compost or, or to, um, yes. Yeah, it, it most def- definitely does. Turns to first mulch and then compost. But being very woody, being very high in carbon, it's just pretty slow to break down. But uh, there's nothing harmful. Those wood chips will eventually just turn into soil. Unfortunately, you're going to end up with kind of a big depression there because it will eventually really break down um, in volume. And you'll probably end up going back and putting a little more soil into that area. The other thing you're going to see is everywhere that a root from that tree grew outward you're probably going to have a line of uh, little toadstools come up along there, mushrooms, whatever you want to call them, but that's perfectly yeah. normal. They're just the, the, the fungus that breaks down that woody tissue. Uh, the little toadstool is its little reproductive structure, so when you start seeing straight lines of these things showing up in your yard over the next few years, all you know is, well, the, the fungi are working underneath the ground to break down those roots, and it's not a problem in any way. Oh, God. All right. Well, sure. Thanks a lot for everything. And you have a good day, Bob. You do the same, Frank. Appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. All right. Let's get a break in. By the way, we've got a couple of open lines, so you know the number, 210-599-5555. I get to talk to you for a moment about uh, the good folks at Morales Feed, and that's always such a pleasure because, you know, Morales, Fred Morales is just one of those men who has worked so hard for so many years to help people improve their soils across South Texas. His latest thing, he's come up with a compost source, and uh, um, not material that I would use on your on your lawn or on your vegetable garden, but if you've been looking for a reasonably priced compost that was cheap enough that you could put it on acreage, well, Fred can help you out with that. He can even help you out with uh, actually putting it out. Fred's done so many things to help uh, ranchers and farmers across South Texas. He's well-known for his K-Line irrigation systems and, of course, best quality feed available for over both domestic plants and livestock. Morales Feed is just, uh, well, it's just a staple of the ranching industry in South Texas, and Fred's always out there to improve things. So if you're looking for a good source of compost, if you're looking to really build up the organic material in your soil pretty quickly, he's the man you want to talk to. Find him at Morales Feed, Mr. Fred Morales at Morales Feed. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening here. Looks like we're going to talk to Donna and David and Marla and James. In other words, all the lines are full. Don't dial for a minute or two here and then we'll have another line available. 
First in line is Donna. Good morning, Donna. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. I know you're a proponent of diatomaceous earth, and um, I, you know, as far as for bugs and fleas and stuff. But you said that it doesn't; it's not effective if it gets wet. Is that correct? Well, it's it is most effective in the dry form. When it gets wet, it tends to clake or clump. Uh, you can always, if you can break it up again, if you can turn it back into a powder. It's not that water deactivates it in any way, but the way that the DE works is it gets down into the joint, so to speak, of hard-shelled insects like fleas and, uh, you know, beetles, things like that, and it just starts cutting. Those little creatures don't have uh, blood vessels and things like uh, higher animals do, and it just, they dehydrate and die. So it has to be dry to be effective against fleas, and uh once it gets wet, no, it's not going to be very effective. When it dries out, since it's an abrasive action rather than a chemical action, uh, it'll go back to being effective again. Okay, well, then I'm confused. I know that you use it with your cattle, and uh, it's, it's real powdery, and then on the uh-huh. bag it says uh, be careful uh, that they don't inhale it. So um, I was just wondering, when they eat it, it's going to become wet. So how, do, well, how is that effective yeah, inside the cattle? You you ask excellent questions. And first of all, um, there are two different forms of DE, what we call agricultural or food-grade diatomaceous earth. And then there is the diatomaceous earth, which has been heat processed and used as a filtering agent. Uh, that type of DE that's used in swimming pool filters or that, you know, I used in the chemistry lab years ago, that stuff is dangerous to breathe, and you want to be very careful about it. The food-grade diatomaceous earth, which is what you have, um, is not toxic in that way. You don't have to use nearly as many precautions with it. But the way okay. it works with cattle is entirely different. And uh, I have to give Bruce Dooley and... I think actually it was his daughter that uh, did a lot of the research, initial research on this, and it acts totally different in an animal's intestine, and it tends to be an irritant to the wall of the intestine. It causes the intestine to create a mucus material that literally sweeps the parasites out of the intestinal tract. It's a totally different mode of action, and so, yeah, adding it to cattle feed or you know, a lot of uh, dog food companies put it in their products because, uh, and it also has some micronutrients. It does a number of different good things and nothing bad. But uh, it's going after a whole different group of problem causers, in this case, a group of parasitic worms. uh, And uh, it it just works totally different with cattle feed than it does uh, in trying to control something like fleas. So excellent question. I'm glad you brought it up. Okay, so whenever we put out uh, the uh, cow cubes, mm-hmm. can we just pour like a cup over each uh, batch of it? That's exactly what uh, we do. And, um, I, you know, I typically, when I'm just putting out cubes, I may dump them on the ground. When I'm going to add diatomaceous earth to them, I, you know, have that little kind of a trough type of feeder. It's long and just slightly, slight depression in the middle. And I actually add the DE to the bucket of cubes before I pour it in the trough, but no reason I couldn't put the cubes up off the ground in that little trough and then add the the DE to it. I think that makes it a little bit more effective, a little bit less wasteful, But uh, because when I'm putting it out on the ground, I tend to scatter the cubes a little bit more. So uh, if I were were not going to put it in a feeder, 
I probably would add the DE to my bucket of cubes and shake it up good before I went and poured it out for the cows. So do you think that uh, if you maybe take a spray bottle and mist the uh, cubes and then put it on there, that way it would adhere to the cubes? Do you think that would be the best way um, to do it? Because I'm, I'm going to be putting it into a trough yeah. that I'm just thinking, you know, that way uh, they would get more of the DE. Well, it, um, it, I'm afraid it will clog up your sprayer. Uh, it doesn't go into solution. and um, no, no, but I, what I'm saying is to spray the cubes oh, with yeah, and then add the water and then add the DE. So it's, you know, because it's so powdery. I'm, oh, yeah. I, you know, you don't want it to be blowing in the wind and stuff, and that way it would adhere to the cubes, and then they would eat the cubes. Well, there's nothing at all wrong with doing that. But my experience is the cattle like it for whatever reason. And when I put it in that, you know, that slick bottom trough, the cows will stand there and lick the bottom until they have uh, polished it, so to speak. Dr. Kirby and I joke about our dogs that polish the bowls with their tongues, the big eaters. But the cows will sit there and lick up anything that has fallen off the cube. So what you're describing would be very, would be no problem whatsoever. But I, in my experience, it's not necessary because the cows seem anxious to, uh, uh, to just lick up anything that fell off the cubes as they were eating the cubes. So I'm not sure what it is. I, you know, I don't know how cows think, obviously, but they, they somehow sense that that material is, it's either good for them or it tastes good, and uh, they tend to clean it up to the point that there's nothing left over when they get through eating. Okay. So if you have, like, 20 cows, mm-hmm. uh in each of the troughs that you're setting out, like if you have like three bags of cubes mm-hmm. and you're separating them out, uh, what, what kind of, uh, what amount would you put in each one of those troughs? I, I put about a cup of DE uh, to a bag, to a 40-pound bag of cubes. and oh, okay. uh, And okay. then just put it out at whatever rate uh you know, those blasted cows will eat their weight in cubes, <laughs> given the opportunity. Oh, right. And uh, that's that's not in my budget uh, uh, to do, but I, I use it at the rate of about a cup of DE, uh, sort of a heaping cup uh, in a 40-pound bag of food. And I actually, generally, if I'm putting out an entire bag, I'll just put it in the in the bag of cubes before I put it out. If I'm using a little bit less, I'll just dump the cubes in the bucket and sprinkle it over that and just kind of shake it up as I go and sure brings the cows running when they hear the cubes in the bucket. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My husband has them all spoiled. But anyway, uh, and well, how I'll, often do you do it? Um, It depends on whether or not you, you know, you have a, a real intestinal worm problem. Uh, cattle get something called ascarid worms. And, uh, you know, if you took biology like I did, you probably dissected them in freshman biology lab. They're not really harmful they they're not anything that's going to cause real serious health issues they just absorb some of the nutrients that the cows ought to be getting so um it it, for people who feel like they have a fairly heavy intestinal parasite load i do it every two or three weeks uh generally i'd say since i don't feel that way i probably put it out maybe every two months for my cows Oh, okay. Good. Hey, that's that is wonderful. And then uh, diatomaceous earth. 
I, I get so frustrated with my squash. You know, as soon as I get a few pickings, then that darn uh, borer comes in and yep. kills the plants. No matter, I, I did the injections this year. I, I put the BT mm-hmm. around the trunk, and still they make their way in. Um, and there's, you know, nothing you can do once you can see them start boring into that stalk. Then it's death for the stalk. So. I guess there's nothing else. Uh, does diatomaceous earth work better if you just maybe mound it up on that trunk? It's I've I've never found it to be effective because the oh. moth that lays the egg um, isn't affected by the DE and the <clears throat> the borer that's actually in the in the stem is more is smooth skin, so DE doesn't really work very well on that. One thing that you can do, I don't usually take the time, but uh, uh, friends that have real problems with it, uh, say that you can take like a razor blade and just slice that stem and take a pair of fine bladed tweezers and actually, you know, pick that borer out of the vine. And uh, squash is such a, a tough plant until you get a real big problem with the borers that it doesn't seem to hurt. A lot of people can actually slice a little hole inside of the stem. Um, I I have had good enough luck with the BT that I, you know, haven't really had that problem. If it's an ongoing issue, always plant some of the little tatumi squash, the, uh, what the people call uh, calabacita. Um, it is, in many ways, uh, grows kind of like a zucchini. It's a longer vine, tastes like a zucchini, but it has a very thin stem that the borers can't get into. So if you want a borer-proof squash to grow along with your others, um, grow a little bit of uh, tatumi. But do you know what the moth looks like that lays the egg for the vine borer? No, I sure don't. What would I look at? How would I Google it? What what would be the name? You can just simply do vine boring uh, or squash vine borer. Uh, if you happen to have a copy of the book that Malcolm Beck and Howard Garrett did, uh, uh, they're excellent pictures in, in what they call the Texas Bug Book. And once you've seen this moth, you'll you'll always recognize it. It actually looks more like a wasp than it does a moth. But if you uh, uh, if you Google just squash vine borer, I'm sure you'll pick up a, a good picture of it. I and I there are times that I walk through uh, my row of squash and I. You know, somebody gave me years ago an old butterfly net, and I don't chase butterflies the way I did when I was a kid, but uh, I can usually snatch that moth out of the air and dispose of it, and uh, they'll they'll be around the vines for a little while before they actually start laying the eggs, and uh, learn to recognize them and, uh, um, and do whatever you can to, to kill the moths. And many times you can see where they have actually laid that little egg on the stem. Go back over that with uh, some hydrogen peroxide or, you know, just simply wipe it off. And um, if you're in your garden frequently, and most anybody that grows squash is out there at least once a day, you know, either picking or watering, just keep an eye out for the moths, keep an eye out for the eggs as they get laid on the stems, and you can head off a lot of that problem. Oh, okay, good, good, good. Thank you so very much. You've been very helpful. I, I understand the diatomaceous earth a little bit better, and uh, we're going to go ahead and start treating our catalog with that also because 
there I, I read on the internet that it, it's very beneficial for the cattle, their oh, hooves, yeah. and just a lot of different things. I was just really amazed with what it does. Well, plus um, the the wormers that the uh, vets sometimes sell, the feed stores sell, <clears throat> that is actually a pharmaceutical material passes through and comes out with the manure, and it kills the uh, little dung beetles. And I just, uh, you know, I wouldn't want their job, but, uh, you know, a healthy ranch will have a pretty good little crop of dung beetles, and it's amazing how much they do as far as, and they're so much fun to watch. I don't know if you've ever watched them. They, they take the manure, roll it into a little ball, and one or two of them working together roll this ball off and bury it, and there's good scientific evidence that it really reduces, you know, a lot of the problems can spread through animal manures, and uh, uh, they even go after dog poop in, in my yard. So I love my dog, my dung beetles, and uh, the DE doesn't seem to hurt them, uh, but the the wormers, the ivermectins, and things like that that some folks use, uh, those are deadly to the dung beetles. So it's one more reason I like to stay with the diatomaceous earth. So, so you think that it's probably really good to give to dogs also and I, uh, periodically? I, yeah, most dogs um, are already taking a heartworm supplement. It's just the, right. every, every dog around should be on heartworm prevention. And the heartworm products like HeartGuard, they take care of the same intestinal parasites that DE does. So... Um, unless you had a problem that has recurring dog that has recurring tapeworm issues or something, because the DE does work against that. But the most common intestinal parasites in dogs are already taken care of with the material you're using for heartworm prevention. So I well, and then in the heartworm prevention has the ivermectin in it. So uh -huh. it, then it would kill the dung beetles. Um, correct? it certainly could, but um. For whatever reason, I I still have plenty of dung beetles in the yard. Good. It may be just okay. a volume type of thing, and uh, the dose of ivermectin is uh, so much higher in what they use for worming cattle than it is for that once a month uh, little treat that your dog takes. So I've not okay. seen it to have that much effect on the dung beetles when you know when the the dogs get it as it would when the cattle get it, cattle or horses. Wonderful. Okay, good, good. Thank you very much, and um, I really appreciate all your good information. Well, your questions are absolutely outstanding, so I appreciate the call this morning. You have a happy Mother's Day, and I know we'll talk again soon. Thanks so much. Thank you. Certainly. Uh -huh. Goodbye. All right, time for me to take a little break here, and I get to talk to you about Dr. Mark Williamson, and it's such a pleasure that just I love talking about people that are right at the top of their field. Dr. Williamson, I put in that category for two different reasons. Number one, he is such a skilled dentist, and he he performs those procedures that most dentists will farm you out to some specialist to take care of. Dr. Williamson is so broadly trained that he can solve virtually any dental issue right there in his office. Second reason is because he's one of the most personable people you will ever meet, and uh, 
you know, gosh, just when you go to the dentist, you want to be in a relaxed atmosphere. You want to feel like your dentist is your friend as well as your dentist. Well, that's the impression you will get when you work with Dr. Williamson and Associates. And uh, gosh, I met him first back when he was uh, assisting Dr. Staffel many years ago. And he's just taken Dr. Staffel's practice and built it, improved it. And gone on to just be, in my opinion, one of the best dentists you'll ever find anywhere. And just a heck of a nice guy as well. And same thing goes for his staff. Uh, they just, you know, they just be some of the nicest people you've ever met. You really have to experience this to know what I'm talking about. And I would highly recommend that if you're looking for a new dentist or if you're looking, you've just moved to the area and you're looking for a dentist that you can really trust and know is extremely competent, well, you need to give Dr. Williamson's office a call. 341-2569, course 210 area code, 341-2569 is the number for Dr. Williamson and Associates. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. Still full. It's going to be David, Marla, and James, and Don. David is up next. Good morning, David. Good morning. How are you doing? Off to a good start on a beautiful Sunday morning. How about yourself? Amen to that. Uh, quick question. Uh, it just dawned on me this week when I was in my garden that uh, before I put my tomato plants out, I forgot to put Epsom salts out. No problem, because you don't really blend the Epsom salts with the soil. You sprinkle it on the surface, and it's never too late. Just get out there and throw a couple of handfuls uh, on the soil, because you're not... You don't want it taken up by the plant. That's not the way Epsom salts work. Epsom salts work to rebalance the calcium and magnesium balance in the soil. So uh, um, you're just running a little late. You haven't missed the window of opportunity at all. Um, If you want it to be even faster, you can put your Epsom salts on in a liquid form. Put about two tablespoons of Epsom salts to a gallon of water and just, you know, pour around when you're watering your plants. Now, if you're like most of us, the soil's probably pretty wet, so um, I'd just get out there, throw it out by the handful, and then uh, sprinkle it down lightly, and you'll be doing what you're trying to do. Okay. Well, that, not, was, not that like was an easy question. Yeah, not like forgetting to put rock phosphate in the bottom of the hole. <laughs> this Epsom salts business okay. is a lot easier, so uh, you're not behind the curve uh, at all. Just get out there and get it done, and stop worrying about blossom end rot. Well, I appreciate it, and have a great day. You do the same, sir. Thank you so very much. I hate to say it, but I've got to get another commercial break in here before the end of this hour. So, uh, Marla, you and James and Don will be up very shortly, but I get to talk to you for a moment about uh, Wild Birds Unlimited. And once again, I absolutely love to do that. Uh, this is Mother's Day. I don't know about you, but uh, there are an awful lot of ladies that I know that absolutely love nature, love being out in the garden, and uh, Wild Birds Unlimited, just a great place to shop for a wonderful gift. If you're not sure what to get her, get her a gift certificate from Wild Birds Unlimited. You're always going to find something beautiful there, whether you're actually into birding, whether you're looking for the best in seed and suet cake and the feeders themselves to offer it, most of which have a lifetime guarantee, whether you're doing that, or whether you're just looking for a beautiful gift like a wind chime or a fountain. The list just goes on and on. Once you go in Wild Birds Unlimited, you know, you'll have the same reaction as most people. When you look from the outside, you think, well, gosh, that's not a very big store. And then you walk inside and think, wow, how did they manage to get so much material in here? 
And of course, the knowledge they have there, Kyle and his staff are just, I've never stumped them on a question about uh, nature or birds, either one. So it's just a fun, fun place to visit. Even if you're not looking for anything specific, even if you just have a few minutes to spend and you want to really enjoy it, you need to stop by Wild Birds Unlimited. Like I say, if you're doing some last-minute Mother's Day shopping, I tell you, most of the ladies I know, I can certainly find a gift for them at Wild Birds Unlimited. Out there in the shopping center at the corner of uh, um, Northwest Military and Hebner Road, there's kind of on the side that faces Northwest Military, although it's a long way back off the road. But that'll give you a little hint about where to find them. And once you found them, you will keep going back. You always have, if you have questions, the number is always easy to remember: four seven nine bird. And Kyle and his staff are always happy to help you. Two ten four seven nine bird for Wild Birds Unlimited. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right, let's get back to gardening and quickly back to the phone lines. Marla is next. Good morning, Marla. Good morning. Good morning. Um, If you have already answered this question recently due to this weather we've had lately, (laughs) then maybe I'm not the only one that missed it. (laughs) Oh, well, let's do it again. What are we talking about? Um, I have a powdery mildew on my zucchini, and Uh I've heard that vinegar, baking soda, milk, cornmeal, all works. What what is your recommendation on that powdery mildew? The most effective thing is to take whole ground cornmeal, not baking cornmeal, but Oh, I think HEB probably sells it as stone ground or a good nursery or feed store will have just, you know, plain old ground up corn. Soak that in water. The corn's not the magic. It's the beneficial trichoderma fungus that grows on the corn. And then just, you know, spray that over the leaves of the squash. It would have been nice to put some out preventatively. Uh, It's also good sometimes to spray liquid garlic. Always do it late in the day if you use garlic because garlic is somewhat repellent to the bees. But um, garlic works to prevent, uh, the corn water tea works to prevent or to cure. So if you're seeing a bunch of it, the only thing better is just strong sunshine. But uh, just corn water tea will will slow it down to the point that it really doesn't impact your squash or cucumbers or melons uh, real drastically. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that's what I need to, to stop it. So we continue to get lots of zucchini. <laughs> and nobody ever has too many good squash. And, and, uh, and uh, Anything else I can help you with? No, that's my only question for today. Well, then you go have a happy Mother's Day, and uh, you. I, you're certainly welcome. Uh, and I, we, we, We're celebrating, too, today. This is uh, actually our anniversary. We opened Shades of Green on Mother's Day 42 years ago. And for various reasons, we're not able to do the big uh, bluebell ice cream and cookies that we once did. Maybe we'll get back to that someday. But uh, anyway, it's just a beautiful Sunday with lots of lots of things to celebrate for lots of people. Uh, next in line is going to be, uh, I believe it's Don. And uh, yeah, uh, good morning, Don. Good morning, Bob. How are you? Uh, just off to a good start. It's an absolutely gorgeous day. Just a little humid this morning. It is. So happy anniversary. Thank you, sir. Definitely appreciate all the uh, good advice you've given over the years. I'd like to think of your Sunday show as the organic gardening gospel of the Bob Webster. <laughs> well, <laughs> excuse me, I'm very flattered by the number of uh, 
of clergymen who tell me that uh, they either preach an early service so they can listen to the show afterwards or do admit that they uh, listen on their way to church on Sunday morning. So very flattered by the comparison. Thank you, sir. Oh, you're welcome. So my first question is uh, concerning birthday holidays. So I planted some about 12 years or 15 years ago inside my house. They were sold to me as dwarfs, but these are about eight feet high now. Um, so I assume those are actually not dwarfs. Uh, those right. are actually dwarfs, and that's pretty much about the maximum size. Had you okay. planted standard Burford hollies, they'd be 15 or 16 feet tall now. So it's it's only by comparison. Uh, dwarf is simply relative to standard, and, and those are very, very mature, obviously, uh, dwarf Burfords, but uh, no, the, the standard Burford would have uh, towered way, way, way above those if you had accidentally gotten those. If okay. you need to reduce the size, you know, you certainly can prune them back. As long as they're continuing to get good sun, obviously you've got good soil or they wouldn't be that big, but uh, just means you have more red berries than anybody else in the winter months. Right. No, the size right now is just perfect, so that's good. great. So uh, another plant question, so another part of my uh, yard. I want to plant some uh, baby gem boxwoods. Uh-huh. Um, can you, uh, once again, go over what the size on those are? Baby gem is going to stay much more compact, and it's one boxwood that will grow in the shade. Now, uh, Japanese boxwood, which was what was planted in my house, I guess, probably 100 years ago, um, they will grow 10 or 12 feet tall. When I first moved up there full-time, I had to, in a two-step process, get them back down to that four to five foot height. Uh, the baby gems are going to top out at about three feet, and if you really want to matter them and make kind of a topiary hedge out of them, you can keep them as low as 12 to 15 inches. But um, left to their own devices, unpruned, uh, somewhere between two and three feet is where they're going to max out. Okay, yeah, that'd be perfect. So what about the spacing on those? So these would be foundation plants, so not looking to create a perfect hedge, but just want to block yeah, the I'd, foundation. I'd, I'd do them about two feet on center, 18 to 24 inches on center. It doesn't hurt them if you or a family member, shall we say, would like to have the foundation covered more quickly. You can plant them as close as 12 inches on center, and they won't they won't crowd each other. But uh, if you want to be a little more economical, 18 to 20 inches apart, uh, they'll grow together within uh, within a couple of growing seasons. Okay. Well, great. That's all I had. So thank you again, and have a blessed day. You do the same. Thanks so much for the call this morning. Goodbye. All right. Once again, just about a minute and a half until news time here. So uh, remind you of all the different things you can do. If you are concerned about powdery mildew, uh, once again, garlic spray, which you probably buy is either a mosquito barrier or garlic barrier, or you make it make your own. It's a great way to head off uh, mildew on many different things. If you're using it in the vegetable garden, though, do use it in the evening when the bees are not very active. It doesn't hurt the bees, but it does tend to repel. And I've had a number, an amazing number of people uh, talk about problems they're seeing, especially with their crookneck squash and to some extent with their zucchini, where the squash starts to form and then all of a sudden uh, it just, just shrivels up or just turns to mush. That is caused by poor pollination. In the case of squash, case of cucumbers, you've got to have one pollen grain land on the pistil, the stigmatic surface of the flower, for every seed that would normally be developed in that squash. 
Otherwise, the squash will start to grow and then abort, just turn into a soggy mess. So you want to encourage the bees as much as possible. I'm seeing some of the problem even where people have bees because just not enough, just not doing a real good job of uh, cross-pollination or, or simply pollination of the flowers. You know, in a squash, the male flowers and the female flowers are totally separate. So sometimes you almost have to get in there with a little paintbrush. Do your own job of dusting around inside the male blooms. Stay connected. Dusting heavily on the female blooms. Uh, that will get you more squash said that will develop well. Right back after news here on KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. Talk to Bob now. 210-599-5555. All right, back to gardening and... Um, Let's see, um, where are we right now, Craig? Or is Maria up next, and then we'll be talking to Don, and then Kate? Just Kate right now, very good. Well, we are back to gardening on a beautiful Mother's Day Sunday morning, and uh, you know the number, 210-599-5555. Actually have a couple of lines open. They've been pretty jammed up for the past couple of hours, so been trying to get through. Try it one more time, 210-599-5555. Well, I say good morning, Kate. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, happy anniversary, and thank you for all your wonderful gardening advice over the years. And happy Mother's Day to you and all the good things I'm thank sure you. you've done for your kids, either fur babies or human kids, <laughs> over the years. Thank so you. Uh, what a beautiful day we have to celebrate. It certainly is. Um, I have two questions. I have a Nestle plum that I put in in March. Mm-hmm. And um, it has been oozing clear sap yep. all over out of all the different joints. Um, what is that? It is a bacterial issue that comes up when trees are stressed. Very common on peaches, very common on plums. It it reduces the overall health of the trees, but it's not it's not something that there's just a magic solution to, but it's not something that's just going to kill your trees overnight, either one. And we generally fight it just through good preventive care. Um, if the trees are buried at all too deeply, you want to expose that root flare. If you go to Howard Garrett's website, dirtdoctor.com, and look at what he calls the sick tree treatment, this will really help a great deal. Spraying the trees with hydrogen peroxide, diluted about 2 to 1, just still grocery store peroxide at 99 cents a bottle, pretty cheap and easy solution. And uh, but it's 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 not something that's going to kill your trees overnight. Now, occasionally we also see problems with sap coming out, usually mixed with a sawdust-like material called frass. That's a sign of borers underneath the bark. Uh, we take care of that differently. We make a fairly strong solution of orange oil and water and spray that on the bark. Goes through the bark and kills the borer underneath. But um, I think what you're looking at is just the uh, bacterial issue and a spraying or two with hydrogen peroxide will greatly reduce it. Thankfully, the good rains will help. And again, check the base of the tree and think about doing the sick tree treatment around it. Okay, super. Okay, great. Um, My second question is on, I have three mountain laurels and they're all looking a little bit chlorotic. Um, Uh the, The leaves just aren't as deep green as I would expect them to be. And they're like a little know, bit of a light yellow kind of. Are these kind of new leaves coming out? The new growth that comes out in the spring is always lighter color, and then it gets darker with time. 
if the old leaves are lighter colored, then uh, it probably is partially due to drought, although it would be a good idea to put some either green sand or azomite around them. Don't think it's a serious issue. And uh, have, have they started putting on their new growth for this spring? They have, yes. And how does that foliage yeah. look? Oh, uh, it is lighter green, like you said. Um, I think, yeah, I think my concern came up because it was some of the existing leaves that were a little bit paler. My, sus my suspicion is just drought related uh, because okay. even even where you're watering with a sprinkler system or something, rarely are you getting the water deeply enough into the ground. If you were the beneficiary of good rain Friday night and especially rain, we had so much lightning along with that rain that uh, that rainwater is just going to be magical on the way plants respond to it. So I doubt that you need to do anything, but if you want to do something that will help, uh, get some azomite. And how, how big is the Mount Laurel? Uh, about three feet. And you could use uh, maybe a cup of And one of, of them is about six feet. Okay, use one cup around the small one, two cups around the bigger one. And uh, it's non-toxic, doesn't have to be watered in. And it's just a great source of all the micronutrients that uh, sometimes cause that lighter color if their trees are deficient in it. Like I say, I suspect that the problem is mainly drought, but uh, it's kind of like taking a good vitamin. It's never going to hurt you or the tree. For sure, for sure. Okay, well, I sure do appreciate all your insight, and have a wonderful day. And you do the same, and a happy Mother's Day as well. Thank you so much. Okay, you. Yeah, bye. All right, uh, Carolyn, Donna, and Mark are my next three callers, and Carolyn is next in line. Good morning, Carolyn. Good morning. Um, I have a persimmon uh, uh, tree, and the leaves are kind of curling and distorted on some of them. And I, this... I look, and there's not, nothing. There is absolutely nothing in there, no webs, no nothing. Mm-hmm. Is this the Asian persimmon with the bigger leaves, or is this the native persimmon with the white-gray bark and the smaller leaves? Uh, it's the Asian one. Okay. There are some, actually, there's some mites that are almost invisible to the eye that could cause it. And also, um, believe it or not, having chilly nights will sometimes cause a bit of that to occur. And... You know, a couple of weeks ago, we were down in the 40s. Uh, earlier this week, we were down in the 50s. The nights, blessedly, are just not as warm as they usually are. So I think it's almost entirely environmental. If you do have a few little cyclamites or two-spotted mites, some of these that you really can't see, uh, they'll go away as soon as the weather warms up a bit. If you want to do one thing to help, spray the tree with liquid seaweed. But I don't believe it's a sign of any, any real severe problem. Yeah. You know, I did, when I sprayed my tomatoes, I did spray uh -huh. it with the liquid seaweed. Uh, so I do that every two weeks. So Well, I okay. think you'll see as the new growth comes out, it should be perfect. I think it's more weather-related than anything else, and I wouldn't worry about it. Okay, thank you very much. Well, you're sure welcome. I wish they were all that easy. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I, okay. Well, I hope it solves it. Okay. I think it will. You let me know. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Carolyn. Uh, next in line is Donna. Good morning, Donna. Good morning. How are you? Off to a good start. How about yourself? Good, except for the fact that my bag of growing green fertilizer got moist during okay. the rain. So uh -huh. I've got, a, I got a, a bag, well, a partial bag of mush. What do <laughs> I do with it? 
just you know spread it around as best you can um it's going to be hard to really if it got really wet uh, you could always let it dry out and break it up with a hammer or something but i'm afraid i just would you know put him put on my covid mask because it's not going to smell real good but i would just kind of whatever you can use i probably would use a little hand trowel I just kind of sling it around under my shrubs and go ahead and uh, wet it enough. Hopefully the ground's already pretty wet, but, you know, wet that enough that it spreads it around a little bit. It's uh, It hasn't harmed it. It hasn't reduced its efficiency. It's just made it a lot more difficult to spread out. But I, I wouldn't wait for it to dry because it'll be a very hard lump and very hard to break up. So uh, I'd maybe put on some some dishwashing gloves or something that are easy to wash off and just get it out and spread around as best you can. Okay, I was worried about the efficacy of it. Oh, no, uh, it'll, I, it, it'll, it'll still work just fine, and uh, it'll never burn, so you don't have to worry about any yeah. you know, side effects or anything like that. But uh, it's just done what, <laughs> what the rain would have done if it had been on the ground instead of still in the bag. Okay, that's what I needed to know. Thank you. Well, good question. Thank you for the call. All right, uh, tell you what, Mark, it's time for me to get a break in so I don't get behind this hour. So hang, I mean, it'll be, uh, uh, yeah, it'll be, we'll be back right after this break to take your question. But let me talk for a minute about our friends over at the Window Source of San Antonio. And once again, I try to vet the people that I talk about extremely well and uh, haven't used them myself. I'll tell you, we're looking at a project that, uh, uh, actually, on, on some other things they do, like guttering and doors. But uh, I tell you, I have talked to a lot of people that have used them and been very, very pleased with the results. Lots of companies out there do windows. Uh, some of them do them well, some of them not so well. But uh, Moses and his staff, they've been at it for a long time. Moses has over 10 years' experience in the business. Window Source of San Antonio has been a very viable business for over five years now and won many different awards for the quality of their work. Windows and doors they use are made mainly right here in Texas, so you know the qualities there. And they are great at installation. Also, the warranty they give you is a really true warranty that covers uh, labor and glass breakage as well, which many companies don't uh, don't cover. If you're doing windows and doors, you're going to spend some money. It's as simple as that, and I think you're always good to uh, get two or three bids just so you know you're making the best decision. But I think if you check out the Window Source of San Antonio, you'll find they're very reasonably priced and provide you with a very good product. Uh, you can go see them. Their, their showroom is over in southwest San Antonio. Uh, you can always give them a call if you have questions or need more information. Uh, that number, by the way, is 210-879-4433, 210-879-4433. I think you'll find them to be very good people, very capable people, and people who would love to help you. The Window Source of San Antonio. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550, KTSA, and FM 1071. All right, back to gardening. Looks like we're going to talk to Mark and Annette and Philip and Betty. Mark is at the head of the line. Good morning, Mark. Morning, sir. How you doing? Off to a good start. How about yourself? Pretty good. I had a couple of questions. Um, so I heard the previous caller saying that she had ooze coming out of her tree, but I think I actually have the uh, the uh, the boars uh, in my okay. peaches. So I'm, I'm not sure what the exact ratio would be for that uh, orange oil. 
use about somewhere around four or five ounces, about eight or ten tablespoons to a gallon of water. Just spray it directly on the bark of the tree, and it penetrates through the bark and will kill the borers underneath. And also, it's very safe for you. It's not going to hurt people or pets or anything else. It won't affect the fruit of the tree, will it? I wouldn't spray it on the fruit. Your borers are almost certainly in the, you know, in the trunk and in the major limbs. The borers are rarely out on the portions of the tree that are going to have fruit on, you know, on the limb. So uh, you'll need to spray carefully, but uh, shouldn't be any problem. And how can I prevent this from uh, happening again? I mean, I don't know. It's uh, it's causing a lot of damage on the tree. Well. It's it's one of the things that uh, you know that peaches especially are susceptible to. There's an odd looking. It's a fairly small little moth. It's dark colored and has some orange on it. And they simply lay their eggs on the bark of the peach tree, and uh, you know they hatch. They burrow through the bark, and then they kind of hollow their way up and down between the xylem, the wood in the tree, and the outer bark. And especially as trees get older, as the growth slows down, they can be harmful to the tree. Now, early on, the tree is growing so quickly that it's probably going to outgrow most of the damage. But uh, other than just a periodic spraying with the orange oil and water, I don't know of any really 100% successful way to prevent them. You can always put up uh, what they call sticky traps. It's just basically a, a yellow surface that's kind of like the old, old-fashioned flypaper that will draw in a lot of moths and things that can lay eggs, which you know wind up with borers or with damaging caterpillars. And you'll eliminate at least a number of them that way. But uh, if you got peach trees, sooner or later you're going to have an issue with borers. Fortunately, the orange oil is just a good non-toxic way to take care of it. So I guess uh, painting painting it white or anything like that, that, that really wouldn't uh, help that's, out or at all? Or? Yeah, that's done to prevent sunburn. Really doesn't do much at all to stop the bind, the uh, uh, tree borers. Okay. And then uh, lastly, uh, what can I put in the – what can I plant from seed right now in the garden as far as vegetables? You can plant a fresh crop of bush beans. You can plant some more squash. You can plant some more cucumbers. Uh, it's just now time to start planting okra. And uh, those are all things that would be easily planted from seed. As far as plants, still a good time on peppers, uh, eggplant, a little early on fall tomatoes. We usually aim at doing that sometime around early July. But a uh, good time to plant, you know, more peppers and uh, certainly a good time to plant eggplant from plants. And uh, um, you're probably not too late if you wanted to grow something unusual like jicama. Uh, they won't get quite as big because they're, you know, going to be a month short on growing time. But if you're looking for something fun to plant in the garden and some the kids would enjoy seeing grow, jicama is an interesting vine and a quite a delicious uh, underground bulb it makes with little lime juice is kind of a South Texas tradition. But uh, the, the main crops are going to be bush beans, uh, more squash, more cucumbers. Would corn or watermelon be too late? Um, yes. Probably so. It's not that it would okay. be too late to grow, but corn is much more susceptible to some insects called midges and some other things that just make it hard to get a good crop. Uh, melons, cantaloupe, and watermelons both. It It's hard to say. You know, if it turns out to be a summer like last summer, things would just burn up in the July heat. If it does turn out that we move back more quickly into an El Nino pattern, 
and it's a little bit cooler and more moist, you might do fine with them. So uh, it's certainly not going to be a guaranteed crop, which I think, you know, cucumbers and squash you can hardly miss with. But if you want to plant a few more melons, watermelons or cantaloupe, either one, if the weather cooperates, you'll do well. And uh, I always tell people I do plants. I don't do weather. I have no idea what this summer is going to bring. But uh, good meteorologists that I trust says that we are moving much closer to El Nino situations, which means cooler weather and more rain. And I sure as heck hope he's right. Okay. Well, that's good news. All right, then. Well, that's what I need to know. I appreciate that. I don't I don't pretend to be very up on the Madden-Julian oscillation and the Western Pacific oscillation and all these, all these things <laughs> that they use in their forecasting, but this guy works for an environmental services company, and as I like to say, he's paid to be right, and he's consulted with our groundwater district for years, so... I'm I'm very hopeful that Davis is uh, right this time around. So you guys get out and enjoy a uh, wonderful Sunday. It's always good to hear from you. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, looks like next in line is going to be Annette. Good morning, Annette. Good morning, Bob. How you doing today? Off to a good start. I hope your mother stays off to a good start. Oh, it's a fantastic start. Well, I'm out <laughs> here in the garden look, looking at my eggplant. Uh-huh. And I'm not sure I know how to how to prune tomatoes and other things, but eggplants new to me. Am I supposed to be pruning eggplants? No, no. no? And you really should. You really shouldn't be pruning tomatoes or peppers. Those are things they do up north where they don't don't know how to garden quite as well as we do here in the south. All you need to do for your eggplant is water, fertilize, and pick. Um, they have very few problems. Uh, they do need good sun, but. Um, Water's really important. Uh, of course, you you don't want to keep them so wet that you've driven all the oxygen out of the soil, but many of your old-fashioned eggplants, the Black Beauty, the great big old dark purple eggplants, if they don't get adequate water, they will be bitter. Now, my favorite eggplant to grow is actually a Japanese eggplant called Ishiban, which is a longer purple eggplant, and I, it's just never bitter. But most other varieties, uh, you've got to be sure you keep up with your watering uh, if you're going to get good quality eggplants. But they are very, very easy to grow and very little for you to do other than water and fertilize. Oh, that's good to know. I'm going to put that on my list for next year, Ichiban. Yeah, Ichiban, I-C-H-I-B-A-N, Innocent Nancy. Okay, that's good to know. We One of the eggplants that we are growing, I harvested the seeds from some white eggplant. Mm-hmm. So those are growing really, really well. So I'm excited about that one. Um, the other question I had is I didn't call you before I started the seedlings of my okra. So I've already okay. planted some. And it's actually, mm-hmm. we're, we've, been, we've been harvesting okra. So, But my Good. question is, is it going to die off? Should I start planting some no. seedlings now that these are going to no. die off? Okra is a heavy feeder. And it just, the the reason we generally don't plant it early is that it just doesn't grow well until the weather starts warming up. I think uh, as it gets warmer, you're going to see probably the best growth. And depending on the variety, your plants may get a little big. But okra is going to produce all the way up till the end of the summer. As the plants get really big and woody, they will drop some lower leaves. And depending on what variety you planted, well, Malcolm Beck used to, plant a variety that we just call Beck's Big Okra, and he actually had to get up on a stepladder to pick the okra. (laughs) But as I'm sure you've discovered, it's something you have to pick every day so those pods don't get too big. But uh, 
You just are fortunate to have had enough warm weather to do well, and uh, but you'll have a long season of picking and hopefully some really good gumbo and other things through the summer months. Oh, my goodness. It's unbelievable how fast they grow from one day to the next. <laughs> well, um, and that's... Year- yeah, that's the thing, too. That's why you have to pick every day, because once they get big and tough, uh, uh, they're they're not much good. But a uh, good reason to get you out in the garden. Oh, absolutely. So that's one of the new things we're doing this year is the patty pan squash. Uh-huh. Those are so much fun and so prolific. Oh, yeah. And they make a real good casserole. You know, the uh, crook neck, straight neck, zucchini, I tend to, you know, squ- slice them up and steam them, but the the patty pan, you can bake, you can make wonderful casseroles for a lot of different things. And some people might not what we're ta- know what we're talking about. The other name for them is bush scallop. But you and I know them as those little kind of little mini flying saucers. And uh, uh, they're a great, great plant for the garden. And they grow so fast like the okra. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> yes. It's crazy. Uh, one more pl- question I have for you. My kale. Mm-hmm. So I went out the other day and it had aphids. And worms, so I spray with BT for the worms, but I'm not sure if that will take care of the aphids. No, it won't take you... care. Won't take no. care of the aphids, but unfortunately, it's about time to uh, put the kale in the compost pile. Kale is a okay. wintertime plant, and when the aphids and caterpillars show up, it's telling you, hey, it's it's about time to be done with it. Uh, if you want to spray and kill the aphids and caterpillars at the same time, you can use spinosad. And it's very safe for you, but the kale's going to really start decreasing in quality. So uh, um, it's just it's just the end of the season on it, and the little caterpillars are. Um, if if you get the spray directly on them, spinosad will certainly kill them. If you want to spray with BT, that's a little bit more long lasting. But uh, if you want a leafy green for the summer, it's going to be more charred. But the kale just gives up when the weather gets real hot. Okay, that's good to know. Okay, I lied. I do have one more question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've always said if I ever do another book, I'm going to call it just one more question because <laughs> most people, that means there are only about five questions left. But uh, let's get your last question. <laughs> okay, sweet potatoes. I've got some mm-hmm. starts going. I'm just not sure how far apart to plant them. You can plant them anywhere from 12 inches to 24 inches apart. What you're going to get is a tremendous amount of foliage. It's going to come out as a vine. That vine's going to grow in all directions. It's going to grow six inches a day, and it's just going to be a forest of leaves all over the ground. Unlike the white potatoes that tend to grow right at the base of the plant, your sweet potatoes may grow five feet out from where you planted the little slip. So uh, the spacing is not real critical. I would very definitely put them at least a foot apart. And I'll tell you how, and I, I did not have not planted sweet potatoes this year, but uh, when I do grow sweet potatoes, I actually grow them in one of these fabric beds. I get one of those things, it's just they're circular, they're about five feet in diameter, and the sides on them are about a foot high. And that way I know within a lot smaller area where the sweet potatoes are going to be. I can just, you know, take my fingers and kind of feel around in the soil and locate where they are. But if you're planting them in your regular garden, they may form the uh, the tubers 10 feet away from where you planted the vine. So uh, it's cause it may be a challenge to find all your sweet potatoes. But as far as spreading them out, a, a foot apart's plenty. Okay, that's 
Great news. Well, thank you so much. I have these questions going to my mind all week long, thinking i got to call Bob, i got to call well, Bob. So I really appreciate all those. You just remember to write them down, because if uh, your mind is like mine, I'll remember them right up to the time that I have a chance to ask, and then all of a sudden, poof, it's gone. <laughs> so anyway, it's always a pleasure talking to you, and hope it is a wonderful Mother's Day for you. I look forward to our thank next visit. Thank you Thank so you. much. You take care. You too. Bye. Greg, I guess we better get a break in here, and uh, then Philip and Betty will be my next two callers. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster is on the air. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Golly, where does the time go? So much fun talking to everybody on this beautiful Mother's Day morning. I uh, will probably finish the show up with Philip and Betty and Cindy and Don, but uh, let's get started and see where we go. Good morning, Philip. Good morning. Yes, I Good morning. promise it's one question. I promise it's one question. <laughs> <laughs> I do so. not mind. I'm here to answer as many questions as we possibly can for you. No, sir. It's just um, I have some St. Augustine grass. And with uh-huh. all this rain, I'm starting to notice it's starting to turn yellow. Is that normal or is that something that I need to – I threw some fertilizer out Monday. But then it rained Monday night. I'm like, great. So what? What? What kind of fertilizer did you put out? I just went and just grabbed some regular uh, turf builder, turf builder from um, Scott Scott's turf builder. Yeah, don't use that stuff. It's it's uh, most of it probably washed away, which is probably a good thing. It it okay. destroys your soil. It destroys the organic material in the soil, the microbial life in the soil. Um, I, mm-hmm. I can't say it's normal. I will say it's common, but it's what happens uh, when the plants start, when the grass starts getting deficient in iron and zinc. And unfortunately, okay. you know, products like like the one you used, uh, that nutrient is all water soluble, and when you water, when it rains, it all washes away. Products like okay. Medina makes or Maestro Grow makes or Nature's Creation. Those things actually bind to the soil, so they don't okay. go away. Um, you're, you want to treat with something that uh, has more iron and zinc in it. You could use azomite, you could <clears throat> use green sand, or you could use a fertilizer that has some extra green sand in it. Medina makes one called Growin, G-R-O-W-I-N, apostrophe, Growin Green. But uh, Growin. Uh, it's it's just, you know, it, it's kind of like uh, you get a little worn down when you run out of electrolytes and things like that, and that's what your grass is doing. So anything with yeah. some extra iron and zinc in it, and you can use a straight iron supplement like green sand, or you can use a fertilizer that incorporates a lot of uh, iron in it, which is what Medina's Growing Green does. The original Growing okay. Green, the 323, uh, they're new one, they're 9961 has more nitrogen, but it doesn't have as much green sand. So I go with the old uh, Medina three two three. Okay, sounds good. And is um, like I was saying, is that rain was what was causing it to turn yellow? Well, um, it, I threw the, the fertilizer down because my neighbors all, hey, you need to put something on that. It's you know, it's starting <laughs> to get it's starting to get waterlogged. I'm like, oh crap. So then I just well, go, I, just go get something real quick, and I went and got something real quick, and then. It rains, so it's probably good for it, but I just want to know yeah, if I have um, something else worried about that, you know, a lot of the parts is starting to turn yellow after the rain. No, no it, it just was getting a little deficient in iron and zinc. It probably would have happened whether it rained or not. Unfortunately, with the fertilizer you chose, there's nothing to hold it in the soil, so the plants will right. continue to benefit from it. 
There's an interesting process. If I had a blackboard in 30 minutes, I'd teach you everything you need to know about what's called cation exchange <laughs> capacity. And uh, that's why some of the other products do a better job of incorporating something that actually binds to the clay in the soil, binds to some other things in the soil, and stays there until the plants need it. When you use a synthetic product like like the one you described, um, it it you know has it's a very fast release and then it's all gone. When you use the product that actually st- and the and the plant probably got ten percent of the available nutrient in it. When you use the uh, slower release organic product, uh, the plants get a hundred percent of the nutrient instead of ten percent, and you get a slow steady feeding over about ninety days. So. It's just a better way to go. You really haven't heard anything, but sadly, you haven't done a lot that's going to correct the uh, the problem. So um, I'd, right. I'd do something that's going to add a little bit more iron and zinc, and uh, 30 days from now, you're going to have a beautiful lawn. Yeah, because I was, like I said, I was just worried about why I was turning yellow, and of course, Google ain't a very helpful place. <laughs> so, no, uh, and it's yeah. it's all for the northern part of the country. There's if you if you go to a website called DirtDoctor.com, that's out of Howard, out of Dallas. That's Howard Garrett's website, and that information is pretty useful in South Texas because their growing conditions are other than being a little cooler in the winter, they're very similar to ours. But most of okay. these things you're getting are you know probably good advice if you happen to live in Wisconsin or. Uh, you know, North Carolina or Washington or something like that. But uh, we're kind of unique here in South Texas, which is not a bad thing, but it just makes it a little bit harder to find good information. So uh, call me or check DirtDoctor.com for for the information you need. So the yellowing before I put the fertilizer was because of too much rain, or what was that from? It was uh, a combination of rain that washed some of the nutrients away, Plus, the, the plants simply used up what was there. It's kind of like, you know, you may eat a really, a really good breakfast, but you're going to be pretty darn hungry by supper time. And that's the way your plants are. They, they, they used okay. up all the things that keep them green, and they were just telling you they were hungry, basically. Unfortunately, right, you, gave them, you gave them junk food instead of a nutritious dinner, but everybody, everybody does that, and uh, it, it's not a problem, but... Uh, uh, I, you know, again, I wish we had an hour to talk about this because oh, the fine, syn- synthetic fertilizers tend to burn the organic material out of the soil. They make the soil get harder and harder over time, and uh, it, it also is hard on the microbes in the soil, which are what basically digest the fertilizer and make it available to your plants. So, um, it, yeah, it, it is a good idea to do a little research. And like I so said, you didn't, you didn't hurt anything, but you gave it some junk food instead of a good nutritious meal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, sounds good. I'll go buy some organic stuff then. Appreciate sounds it. Sounds good. Hey, I appreciate the call, Phil. Thank you, sir. Goodbye. All right, let's talk next to uh, Betty. Good morning, Betty. Good morning. Good morning. I was fortunate enough to have a whole yard full of blue bonnets this year. Excellent. And I'm going to distribute it to neighbors and to my pasture area. Uh-huh. And I was just curious, do I need that powder that you put on peas? To, in order for them to be uh, viable? It's, that is an excellent question, and the answer is no. Um, if you treated them, the, the powder you're talking about is a product that is full of the bacteria that cause different legumes, including blue bonnets, to form little nodules on, that are attached to the roots. It helps sort of self-feeding. It helps uh, take nitrogen from the air and 
feed the plants. But your blue bonnets are going to grow and thrive anyway. They would be a little better um, if you did give them one of the uh, inoculants, but uh, that inoculant's been real hard to find this year. So no, you're 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 fine just to plant the seed as is, and uh, your neighbors too. And you're you're doing a really good thing because you're giving them good fresh seed. Uh, the blue bonnet seed that you buy. Well, number one, it may not be a variety of blue bonnet that grows here. And number two, if the seed is old at all, it will sprout. But it might take two years, four years, six years for it to sprout and come up. You're going to give your friends good fresh seed, which is probably going to grow and bloom next year. So uh, uh, people, oh, are lucky okay. to be, people are lucky to be on your list of friends. Oh, great. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And I forgot the word inoculant. That's what I did say. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's easier than the, than the word for the actual bacteria that uh, are, are on there, rhizobium and some other weird names. But uh, just remember inoculant. And uh, it, it would, you know, it would take a good thing and make it even better, but it's absolutely not mandatory. Well, if it's hard to get, I'll have to do without. <laughs> well, hopefully next year when you... You're, you're going to have a great crop again next year because no matter how much you uh, you try to collect the seed, uh, the pros that do this, the guys at Wild Seed Farm, um, when they collect the seed, they figure they get maybe 30% of the seed that's out there with their fancy equipment and everything else. So uh, you're going to get a lot of reseeded blue bonnets, and if the weather cooperates, uh, this won't be the only year you can do this. But uh, uh, tell your friends sure you're getting so. a very... Yeah, they're getting a very generous gift because blue bonnet seeds gotten really expensive the past few years. So uh, they're they're lucky if they're on Betty's good list. Oh, great. Okay, thank you for your information. Always a pleasure. Thank have, you for the call this have morning. Have a good day. And you do the same. And a happy Mother's Day, uh, Greg. Let's get our let's get our last break of the show done, and we'll be back and talk to Cindy and Don and see where we go from there. South Texas Gardening with Bob Webster. News Talk 550 KTSA and FM 1071. All right. Golly, we're getting down toward the end of the show here. I'm sure we've got time to talk to Cindy and Don, though. So uh, let's get back to the phone lines, and Cindy is up first. Good morning, Cindy. Good morning, Bob, and happy anniversary. Well, and happy me, Mother's Day to you. You're making me feel old. <laughs> you're making me feel old. <laughs> I've well, been going to your place for that long. Oh, you and Terry have been coming around a long, long time. And uh, we just, as I tell people, we just started when we were very, very young. How's that? Yeah, I must have been five. <laughs> I, yeah, I think, I think I was seven. But anyway, something like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I had two questions. And then when the caller before was talking about blue bonnet seeds, now I have another question about blue All bonnet right. seeds. Okay. Um, I have a little patch of blue bonnets, just one little little bunch, and uh-huh. it's got seeds on it now, and I was going to pick them and move them to another place in the yard. Do I need to do anything special? Well, be sure the seed is mature, but not too mm-hmm. mature. You know, it's like a little bean. Once it starts to yellow, then it is mature, and you can harvest it at any time. Uh, it's a little easier to get the seeds out of the pod if you wait until they're, you know, actually starting to dry. But there's a very fine line between the time the seeds are mature and the time that that pod splits open on its own, and all of a sudden that seed's down on the ground where you'll never see it. So uh, obviously, probably got a good rain 
at your house, I certainly got best rain I've had in several years, uh, you know, Friday yeah. night. So um, uh, you don't really need to water, but just keep an eye on that seed. And once those little pods start turning yellow, you can harvest at any point after that. Okay. And then what do I do? Do I throw them out now or wait? It's totally up. It's totally up to you. The the problem and the reason that some years we don't have as good a crop, you know, out along the roadsides is Mother Nature obviously plants the seed in May, May and June. The worst thing mm-hmm. that can happen is if we then get good rains, let's say about July or August or so, and the seed germinates, but then it turns into a dry fall and little plants die because they didn't get watered. Um, and so that's that's the risk you run if you just let the plants drop their own seed. If you harvest the seed, uh, keep it in a cool, dry place, uh, or do like I do, put it in an envelope and put it in a mason jar in the refrigerator and plant that seed in late September or early October or so, then you you aren't as susceptible to having a drought kill your little plants after they've already sprouted. By the time they sprout and grow, we're moving into the real cool season when it's not as likely to get as dry, and you're almost guaranteed uh, with just even a little bit of moisture that you'll have a good crop of blue bonnets next year. So, <laughs> excuse me, the choice is yours. If you want to, if you want to just let them go to seed, or if you want to replant the seed somewhere else, you certainly can. But don't do it in a spot that you can't water because, you know, you'll see the seed germinate. You'll see them form that little rosette of leaves. At that point, they're going to need water at least every couple of weeks to survive long enough to turn into their second phase of growth, the more upright plant that will happen late next fall. Okay. That sounds good. I'll do that. I'll just wait. My my other question is um, on... Our Japanese ewes that have been just struggling since we've had the first freeze and then the second freeze. Right. And I'm I'm wondering if it's am I just dreaming that it's going to be perfect later? Now little tufts are coming out, little tufts of green. Yeah. And so if is am I just imagining that it's it's no, going they- to be. They 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 will come back. The lower part of the plant didn't freeze. The root system below the ground level certainly didn't freeze. But they got severely set back, especially the, the cold that we had earlier this year followed a lot of warm weather and followed a very dry period. And Japanese yew, like many other things, were damaged. Japanese yew actually less than some things like xylosma and even pittosporum. So... Um, it's not going to happen overnight, but water and fertilizer and patience, and just let's pray we don't have another winter that cold. Hopefully, if we do get back into the El Nino weather pattern, it usually means cooler summers, warmer winters, so there's less likely we will see that kind of cold again next year. But um, I, it's just going to take some patience and just watch your watering carefully, feed them every 90 days or so, and they will come back. Okay, do I need to be cutting the tops off? Anything that's dead and brown cut off, other than that, I just let it grow. Once we get a year or two into it, once I've got a lot of good green growth on them, if we want to trim a little bit just to shape them, uh, that's going to be fine. But at this point, I wouldn't take off anything unless it's brown and crispy. Okay. And then one last question. I did throw out a packet of wildflower seeds. Mm-hmm. Um, back in back in the fall, 
and I've been waiting and waiting and watching for something to come up, and all I see is this one plant, and I don't recognize it, but my plant ID says it's a hornbeam copper leaf. Is that a weed? Should I be pulling that? No, I, I would just leave it be. A lot of that seed, if it was really dry when you got it, it may take a second year, third year before it's really sprouting, ready to sprout and grow. But uh, um, just be glad you got the good blue bonnets and uh, and the other will come along, but it may be next year or even the following year. Sunday, have a great Mother's Day, but let me try to get Don in here for the end of the show. Good morning, Don. Good morning, Bob. Got a question for you. Okay. Okay, I've got my raised bed garden, and I want to plant okra. Is it all right to plant my okra seed between my bell peppers? Because the bell pepper is only going to get two feet tall, and the okra is going to jump to what, four feet? Depends on the variety. The okra might get six feet. You may have to have a stepladder if that raised bed is very high. Um, the only issue that I would be concerned about is the okra shading out because okra tends to make some pretty big leaves, makes a good deal of foliage. So I would, uh, I, I guess if I were doing that, I would be planting the okra, you know, on the east side of the other plants just so you're still going to get plenty of good afternoon sun in there. Uh, it's not going to be an issue with nutrients or water consumption or anything else, but if the okra gets so big that it blocks out the sunlight, that will keep your other things from doing well. Yeah, because I've only got eight seeds to plant because it's oh. that special 14 to 16-inch pod okra. Yeah, um, I'll be interested to see how it does. Uh, but, uh, no, you should be fine. Just spread them out a good deal. Uh, I'm not concerned about competition. I'm just concerned about uh, them, you know, shading the other plants out too much. So, anyway, let me know how they do. Everybody else, uh, stick around for the pet show.